Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It's, it's time dance. for the Bible. It's time for the Holy Ghost Spirit-filled John 316 Bible Geek. Can I get a witness to my own insanity, perhaps? Anyway, uh, this is from our good friend David Oliver Smith, author of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Paul. He says, I need a reality check. I've been writing my book about the structure of original Mark, uh, and something struck me about the leaven of the Pharisees that verges on the absurd. I'd like your opinion on my sanity. (laughs) I don't know if I'm a reliable judge of such things. In my reconstruction of Mark, I've collapsed the two miracle feedings into one. The first part of the first one seems Markan to me, and the last part of the second one seems original. I also think that in original Mark, the parable discourse came immediately before the miracle feeding. Therefore, in my reconstruction, the pericopi in this section are parable discourse, miracle feeding, Pharisees ask for a sign, leaven of the Pharisees. It appears to me that the entire middle half of the gospel from the parable discourse to the Olivet discourse is a section on Pauline teaching with the clearing of the temple and withering of the fig tree near the center of that section symbolically representing the replacement of Judaism with Christianity. In the parable discourse, Jesus uses the word understand three times at 4, 12 through 13, asking the disciples how are they going to understand all the parables. And in the Olivet Discourse, the narrator says to the reader, let the reader understand at 13, 14, in the middle of a reference to Daniel 11 and, 11 and 12. To balance things out, look is found three times in the Olivet Discourse and once in the Parable Discourse, so that these discourses refer to each other. With this background, then, there is the pericope about the leaven of the Pharisees that has puzzled scholars for years. Here's my reconstruction of it, leaving out what I think are interpolations. 8.13 and sending them away, and again embarking into the boat, he departed to the other side. Then skipping 14, going into 15, and he admonished them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. 8.16, 
and they discussed among themselves, saying, Ah, we have no bread. 17. And realizing it, he says to them, Why do you discuss about having no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? 8.18. Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? 8. You skip 8.19, go to 8.20. When the seven uh, among the 4,000, how many basketfuls of broken pieces were left over? And they said to him, seven, 8.21. And he said to them, do you still not understand? This to me is an obvious reference to 1 Corinthians 5, 7 through 8, in which Paul says, Purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, even as you are unleavened. For our Passover also has been sacrificed, even Christ. Wherefore let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Notice that Paul has made a reference to the Passover, and of course later in 1 Corinthians at 11, 23-28, Paul institutes the Eucharist as a sacrament. Although Paul doesn't say who the Lord is, uh, the Lord is giving the bread and the wine to. Also note that in the miracle feeding, Jesus went through the same procedure as he does later at the Last Supper, 14, 22 through 23, but in reverse order. By that I mean at the miracle feeding, Jesus gave thanks for the bread and blessed the fish, while at the Last Supper he blessed the bread and gave thanks for the wine. In between the miracle feeding and the leaven of the Pharisees, Jesus tells the Pharisees that no sign will be given to this generation, even though we just read a story about bread and fish being miraculously multiplied. This pericope is an obvious reference to 1 Corinthians 1.22. Seeing that Jews ask for signs and Greeks seek after wisdom. Getting back to the leaven of the Pharisees, is the author of Mark telling the reader to understand that this entire gospel is a parable? How will you understand all the parables? Why are you discussing bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Let the reader understand. Nobody can magically multiply seven loaves of bread to feed 4,000 and have seven baskets left over, you nitwits. This is allegory based on Paul and the Old Testament about feeding Paul's gospel to the world. No sign will be given to this generation. And by the way, the women never told anybody that Jesus rose from the dead. You must have faith. Have I gone off the deep end? Maybe I have proved you can cobble together Bible passages and prove anything, what saith the geek? I wouldn't say you're insane, um, but um, it uh, does seem to me... Well, there's one big problem. If you need to excise some of this material in order to trim away what interrupts a chiastic structure that uh, strikes me sort of as what they call surgical exegesis uh, granted they're, they're very likely interpolations I know that though it's a little bit difficult to spot what they are 
but if the premise is that this document uh, has this chiastic structure, but then it doesn't, and you have to hack out stuff, then uh, I think the basic claim is weakened. Um, also, th the use of some of these words that, uh, like, look and uh, understand and so on, that doesn't really seem as distinctive, say, as the the uh, young man in white. I mean, even that isn't a clincher, but when you see the guy in the tomb and the same figure, at least described the same way, in the Garden of Gethsemane, you, you do kind of begin to wonder, is this supposed to be the same guy? And so on. But this doesn't seem as distinctive to me. Um the uh, no sign will be given, that strikes me simply as an inconsistency arising from the combination of various materials that just don't fit together. Um, and it's on the level of the narrative in which Jesus has miraculously multiplied food that he makes these rebukes. Didn't you get it? I mean, in, in that sense, it seems kind of odd that if we first hear Jesus did multiply the loaves and fishes, uh, that and then he goes on to say, don't you understand that it, it's hard, I think it's contrived to say that he is trying to tell them no such thing happened. I mean, even their wrong answer implies they saw this happen and were involved with it. Now, it could be a la Robert M. Fowler in Let the Reader Understand, Reader Response Criticism of the Gospel of Mark, that this is really aimed at the reader. Uh, much of Mark is, but it, it seems to me, as my old professor uh, Donald Jewell at Princeton said, when you have Jesus saying, uh, when we fed this many people with this uh, little food, how many uh, basketfuls did you get left over? So-and-so. When we fed this other group with a uh, small amount of food, what did you pick up afterward? So-and-so amount. He says, uh, don't you get it? You, you wonder if the reader is being tasked with figuring something out from the numbers. Uh, and some people have said, well, one feeding represents the Jews and the other the Gentiles. That might be it. But this seems a little iffy to me, and uh, I, I'd have to go into it in much more detail than I have time to do. Um, and similarly, the the uh, parallels between Paul and these gospel passages, it's difficult to say if you have dependence or if you just have early Christians using common motifs uh, and uh, they're against a Jewish background and which you're going to have Passover references and leaven references. Uh, I, uh, I, I'm not really convinced, though it certainly is possible. So keep, keep up the good work, though. You're doing innovative and fascinating work, Dave. That's the truth. Uh, let's see, Evan says, in the Exodus story, why does God appear to Moses in the form of a burning bush? I can understand the light and heat of fire being used symbolically to refer to the deity, but why a bush? 
Why not simply the pillar of fire that God uses to display his presence elsewhere in Exodus? And is there a symbolic or allegorical significance to the idea of being burnt but not consumed by the fire? Um, actually, I don't see problems there. Uh, the uh, I think it's an adequate explanation of the bush being on fire yet not consumed and reduced to ashes that uh, the narrative gives when it's uh, it, it shows that this had to be something odd to intrigue Moses uh, in the distance he sees the thing on fire who knows you know what that could have been I mean we do have references from the earlier 20th century to people seeing ball lightning stuck in trees and the like. It's not out of the question. But the narrator says, Moses notices that it doesn't burn up. And he says, I got to go check this out. Why doesn't it actually burn up? So it's a gimmick to get his attention. Uh, Not really unlike the later proofs God gives him of his hand turning leprous and the water turning to blood. As for the bush being burned and not something big, apparently he's trying to intrigue him, not freak him out. Uh, the, um, The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night uh, seems to be uh, well. For one thing, it says it's at one point uh, the pillar is placed between Israel and uh, their pursuers. It's a big thing where you don't really need that level of pyrotechnics to intrigue Moses to come over there, where then the theophany occurs. Hmm. Let's see. Uh, two in the this is also from Evan in the opening passage of the Gospel of John. Why is logos universally translated as word? I don't know Greek, but to my knowledge, logos can assume a large range of meanings, from word to speech, to account, to reason, to principle, and more. Is its translation as word merely conventional? What meanings and associations would a first century reader have attributed to this passage? Well, I think the fact that it's taken for granted is a sign that uh, this is dependent upon the technical vocabulary of Philo, who speaks of the Logos, and he says it's the same thing as Sophia, wisdom, but it seems, and he's personifying it, we don't know how literal uh, Sirach and the wisdom of Solomon and Proverbs meant us to understand its personification of wisdom. But uh, Philo definitely took it to be a hypostasis, some kind of personification of God God, or of an attribute of God. And uh, he said, in that case, we got to assign a gender to it and it would seem more fitting for it to be male than female. Chauvinistic? Uh, You bet. And uh, so he says, let's call it the Logos. Means pretty much the same thing. Uh, Therefore, I think you could uh, legitimately translate it in John's Gospel, the wisdom. In the beginning was the wisdom. That that would make sense to me. But I think um, it... uh, 
the translation is probably um, it may have made more sense given in Philo, given that he explained quite a bit about it. It meant the mind of God. It meant uh, the ideas in the mind of God. It meant those ideas externalized as the blueprint of creation. It meant the uh, the Heraclitian principle of of order within change and. Um, is it so i'm guessing the uh, the translation as word uh reflects a tradition of interpretation of philo uh the middle platonists and the stoics and um and heraclitus but uh, i'd have to leave that as an educated guess uh, let's see. I think uh, J.B. Phillips does translate it differently. In the beginning, God spoke or something. Let's see. Three, uh, Genesis 5.24 implies that Enoch is taken from the world by God without actually dying. Does this suggest an early Israelite belief in some sort of heavenly afterlife available only to some and distinct from Sheol, the usual afterlife destination? And... Uh, a related question, Abraham, Ishmael, Aaron, and Moses are all said to be gathered to their people when they die. Does this phrase also reflect a Jewish belief in an afterlife, either Sheol or otherwise? Well, I think that that just means they were entombed like their ancestors, and in some cases possibly in the same tomb, a family tomb. I think that's all that means, that they're sort of stored away. Um, I, I don't think it would be legitimate to read more into it. If that was intended, it certainly isn't very clear. With Enoch and Moses and Elijah, these guys ascend into heaven because originally they're all the sun. They're all sun gods. And so these are narrative myths describing the motions of the, the celestial bodies. So Enoch is taken up and uh, then walks with God across the firmament, the sun crossing the sky. And um, it's the same with Elijah, a hairy man, uh, symbolizing the, like uh, Samson, seven locks of hair, uh, the rays of the sun. And Moses, who shines like the sun, they're all uh, sun god figures. So when they are said to rise into heaven, I don't think it's saying anything about an afterlife doctrine. It's just saying that they went to God because they did not die. We think of an afterlife as somebody dies, but then has another kind of life with God in heaven. But these guys pointedly ascend because they do not die. So it wouldn't really count as an afterlife, even once you lose sight of the fact that it's the sun and think, well, these guys got special treatment because they were God's favorites. Well, they, they didn't die. So not an afterlife, and the same thing is not going to happen to the rest of us. So... Uh, greetings, O oh mighty geekster, from Alan, requesting a southern accent. I was born in the south and grew up in a very religious southern Baptist environment. My first encounter with doubt was when I was five. My older sister had figured out there was no Santa, and my Santa belief was an incidental casualty. 
At the time, I did not see a lot of difference between Jesus and Santa, so I figured Jesus was another prank adults played on kids. I mentioned this to a family member who promptly told me I would burn in hell forever, so I decided to believe. At the time, I thought, yeah, Bugs Bunny was real, so Jesus wasn't that much of a stretch. A few years later, when I started having doubts, I did not tell anyone and thereby avoided a lot of drama and trauma experienced by many young atheists. I continued to go to church in order not to blow my cover, and the preacher's daughter was pretty hot. For 18 years, I received an education on how to use the inerrant word of God to guide my life, so naturally I didn't learn anything about the Bible. I've really enjoyed learning about the Bible from both your podcasts and Gary Stevens' history in the Bible. Thanks for pointing out Dr. Stevens' excellent podcast. My question for the geek is, what is it with sheep? What parts, if any, of the Old Testament were written by nomadic herders? The author of Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, was probably not a shepherd or a sheep. Was shepherding by the Second Temple period an important profession? Or uh, are all the New Testament sheep references just metaphors for blood sacrifice and atonement? Now, being a shepherd was pretty common, uh, hence the viability of the metaphor. Though I think you're right, though the 23rd Psalm makes very clever use of the shepherd imagery throughout. Uh, as, uh, what's his name, Keller, I think it was, said in his book, uh, Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. Um uh they uh it it's uh, it's just using the familiar imagery it's uh, it must have been written by a levitical um hymn writer uh but i think it's not too surprising i'm the good shepherd and all that everybody knew what that was and so probably not that big of a deal i don't think it it has packed into it the implication of uh sacrifices necessarily uh See, this is from Dave Paterson uh, in suburban Fridley, um, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, I know Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, is now pronounced as Yahweh instead of Yehovah. How confident are scholars that this is the most accurate pronunciation since the word was not spoken except by the high priest once a year in the temple? It is my understanding that Jews did not start using diacritic markings to designate vowel sounds in written Hebrew until around 600 CE with the Masoretic text. Uh, perhaps the Jewish scribes at that time, uh, when the Masoretic protocols were formed, did not know how to pronounce YHWH and just guess, don't you know? Uh, I uh, see that that's uh, outside of, you know, I don't really know. Uh, I just have uh, read for a long time. Hebrew scholars say, yeah, it, it looks like that uh, this is uh, a more accurate pronunciation. But I don't uh, really know how they how they uh, determine that. Maybe Reuven can enlighten us. Um, but uh, good question. Supposedly, it would be best to pronounce it Yahweh, as I uh, often do. Um, 
okay, I know you're a New Testament scholar, and these questions are out of your area of expertise. Of course, that doesn't usually stop me from talking about stuff. Uh, but what are the differences that you know of between the Jewish and Samaritan Pentateuchs? When did they diverge from each other? And how does the timing of this divergence influence the idea of how and when the Jewish Pentateuch was finalized? Well, um, I think again of uh, Ronald uh, Russell, uh, American's book, Barosis and Genesis, Manetho and Exodus, where he says it kind of looks like the uh, the uh, compilation of the Pentateuch coincided with its translation into Greek in the uh, uh, third. I'm sorry, in the fourth century, the 300s B.C.E., done by this committee of scho- Jewish scholars in Alexandria, Egypt. I think even that might be too early to tell you the truth. Um, But uh, he says, if I remember right, that the Samaritan Pentateuch must be subsequent to that. And and I think he is saying, I'd really have to look this up again, that uh, the uh, Samaritan text is a kind of a subsequent variant. Uh, and I don't think there are a whole lot of differences, except that uh, Mount Gerizim turns out to be the the place the Lord our God shall choose uh, the, for the central worship. Uh, it's uh, it turns out in uh, the Hebrew to be Jerusalem, though I think that's post Pentateuch actually that it's interpreted that way, and. Um, because you know the Samaritan Pentateuch pretty much is the uh, the scripture of the Samaritans. Uh, they do have a completely different book of Joshua tacked onto it, but that's it, uh, and uh, none of the rest of it. So uh, it, it does seem like there's some differences, but many of them appear just to be textual variants, indicating that. Uh, that there were different manuscript families because some of those uh, readings occur in the Hebrew of the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, copies, which are real early. Uh, So it's not uh, hugely uh, uh, different. Um, Well, I do recommend that book, though it's mighty expensive. Uh... Okay, yeah. Um, oh, this is interesting. Mark from Bandung, Indonesia. I've always loved that name. As an Australian dairy farmer here in Islamic Indonesia, my ears pricked up recently during the podcast of a sermon on Malachi when verses 2-3 were quoted. Behold, I will punish your descendants and splatter your faces with the manure from your festival sacrifices. I will show you, I will throw you on the manure pile. Even around the farm, I don't see a lot of people walking around with cow poop on their faces. How do believers reconcile their notion of an almighty perfect in power and love and purity? That's a line from him, right? Uh, With that of a crap-throwing deity who behaves like a naughty two-year-old. I guess they just figure that's not much of a problem 
if you're still chewing on the hell doctrine, right? Uh, but I guess they're saying God is just saying people have really gotten out of line and he's really going to humiliate them. Uh, I suppose that's the the case. Uh, it, it does seem pretty disgusting. Uh, I mean, even if you as a farmer can see this is... Um, yeah mucho repellent uh i guess the ancients must have thought so too but then i guess that's the whole point that you're you're really going to get it not destroying you but grossly shaming you yeah i bet you don't hear too many sermons on that i'm amazed that you heard one boy ah let's see uh ward thomas in vienna virginia let's see Kudos to the creator of the new theme song for the show. Very catchy. My question pertains to the saying, God helps those who help themselves. Wikipedia tells us that the phrase, top to pole, is the most widely known Bible verse. Except, of course, that the phrase isn't in the Bible. Not in so many words, anyway. But what about the concept? Is any such concept to be found? We just pause there. It uh, first occurs, as far as I know, in a Hercules myth, where Hercules has died and then ascended into Mount Olympus, uh, from which he occasionally appears. And so this guy's uh, ox cart gets stuck in a mud hole, and he's um, praying to Hercules to appear and to get him out of it, uh, get the thing out of the mud. Uh, nothing happens. Uh, and uh, so he then uh, starts cursing and then decides, okay, I'll see what I can do. And he puts a shoulder into it. And suddenly the thing moves uh, pretty easily and he turns around and there's Hercules. And he said, why didn't you come before? And uh, when I called and Hercules says, the gods help those who help themselves. Well, there is a Jesus and Peter version of this story. I uh, forget where I read it, but it's apparently some medieval story where the guy calls on God or whatever. Nothing happens. He decides to try his best. And uh, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Jesus and Peter walking along. The guy's in trouble uh, and uh, they don't help him. And Peter says, geez, why are we not uh, helping the guy? He's just sitting there, apparently. And uh, then they, they watch from a distance and the guy decides to try to move it. And then Jesus says, okay, come on, let's go. And they do help him. And, and Peter says, why didn't we help him originally? Well, because God helps those who help themselves. Okay, um, back to the question. I suppose it depends in part on what we mean by helping ourselves. Is it about honest work and industriousness? I think there are wisdom verses supporting this idea in Proverbs and elsewhere. Is helping ourselves about taking initiative or action where called for? There's James 4:17. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doth it not to him, it is sin. Or is helping ourselves about looking out for number one, taking for ourselves, uh, yeah, uh, without regard to law or ethics, uh, for, for instance, stealing. Is there little support for the latter concept in the I'm sorry, there is little support for the latter concept in the Bible that I know of, except perhaps the parable of the unjust steward in Luke 16, which I find rather inscrutable, King James. 
And he said unto his disciples, There was a certain rich man who had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. And he called him, and said unto him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest no longer be steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my Lord taketh away from me the stewardship. I cannot dig. To beg I am ashamed. I am resolved, uh, resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his Lord's debtors and said, uh, unto him, and said unto the first, How much owest thou unto my Lord? And he said, an hundred measures of oil. And he said unto him, Take thy bill, and uh, sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much owest thou? And he said, An hundred measures of wheat. And he said unto him, Take thy bill, and write fourscore. And the Lord commended the unjust steward, because he had done wisely. For the children of this world are in their, their generation wiser than the children of light. And I say unto you, Make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when ye fail they may receive you into everlasting habitations. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much, and he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if ye have not been faithful Faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon, my mammon, I'd walk a million miles for Washington, smile, my... Sorry. Um... As I understand the story, the steward misuses his lord's assets, specifically by reducing the debts of his lord's debtors for the steward's own personal advantage or gain. In fact, you kind of wonder if that's what got him into the trouble in the first place. And yet the Lord commends the steward for his wisdom in doing so, despite the fact that the steward's dealings were unfaithful with respect to his Lord cheating him. Is the steward being held up as an exemplar of vice or of virtue or both? I find the moralizing at the end of the tale unclear in this regard. Even in my days of flirting with biblical inerrancy, I was pretty well convinced that this tale had gotten garbled or corrupted, so out of step, it seems, with the theme of honesty in the Gospels, but it might support the concept that God helps those who help themselves. Except that in none of these examples is God really helping those who help themselves. Rather, it seems that God is not interfering with the self-help. Perhaps that's the point. What thinketh the geek? Do any other biblical passages come to mind that support the self-help concept? Well, about this, uh, this parable, um, well, I don't know. What, what, do you think uh, the parable of the talents would count? where uh, these guys are entrusted with an amount of money from the, the king or their boss or whatever, 
to invest while he's away on a business trip and to see what yield they can present to him when they get back. And and so the two try their best and they uh, make more back. And uh, even though one makes more than the other, the master is very pleased and rewards both of them. But the third guy said, gee, I was afraid to take the risk. Suppose I lost the whole thing. Then I'd be in big trouble. He said, oh, no, you're in big trouble now. You should have at least tried. That kind of fits the God helps those who help themselves. Themselves, but uh, I don't know. I think the, um, the the Deuteronomic theology of the Old Testament and the theology of grace without me, ye can do nothing, and all that stuff. That doesn't. That seems to be like what Schleiermacher would call absolute dependence. Maybe you could count. Uh, is it John five? I forget the the uh, the healing of the the. Uh, a lame man at the pool of Bethesda or Bethzatha or whatever you whatever manuscript you you uh, prefer. This guy is there with a crowd of other suppliants. He's lame, and uh, when the water bubbles up, indicating the invisible presence of an angel, first one into the pool gets healed. Uh, this guy uh, is uh, unable to go. Well, that's what he tells Jesus. Uh, Jesus comes in and sees the guy. And says, uh, "How long have you been here? Oh, for years." And Jesus says to him, "Do you even want to get healed?" Uh, and uh, he says, well, yeah, sure I do, but I, given you know the nature of the case, I can't hustle up to the front of the line. Uh, well, uh, is that what Jesus is implying? I don't think you really want to get healed. And even if that's what he means, uh, it, uh, Jesus helps him anyway, so you don't really have him helping those who help themselves. I don't know if that is a biblical idea. As to what this parable of the unjust steward means, it is pretty confusing. It is a Lucan creation, I'm pretty sure of that, because it follows the pattern of these longish story parables that are only really in Luke, and uh, most of them have this trademark thing where the the central character is in a quandary and comes to the point of saying, oh, he says, what shall I do? Oh, I will do so-and-so, the prodigal son and the unjust judge and various others. It's, I think it's got to be Luke and creation. And as with the uh, his version of the anointing by the sinful woman, it, it's incoherent. Um, the the this seems apologetical to me. It it's not absurd though. It could be that the main point is sort of Heideggerian. When the crisis point comes, you better be ready to do what is necessary. And it is coming because the end of the age is coming and uh, you'd better do with your money the only thing worth doing with it now that the end is at hand and that is giving to the poor. They got to eat today and tomorrow. I mean, there may be a few days before, a few weeks before the end of the age comes, and uh, they need the help in the meantime, whereas you don't need to save the money. You know, for what? Uh, So that could be that he doesn't make it explicit, but in the context, since so much else in Luke says to give away your money if you want treasure in heaven, right? Very similar promise here. Uh, Eternal dwellings that uh, won't pass away. It's uh, that sacrificing the the bucks here and now is well worth it, given the eternal payoff, which is sort of the same logic with the um, 
cut off your hand, saw off your foot, pull out your eye if they offend you, because look, it's better to enter into eternal life maimed and blind than to be fit as a fiddle, but then thrown into the Gehenna of fire. Uh, same sort of a thing. It's worth the sacrifice. Uh, act decisively now. As Jeremias points out, Parables are not necessarily allegories. It's not like every detail of a parable stands for something. Sometimes it's just the cumulative effect. There's a kind of an analogy between the story arc as a whole and some kind of truth you ought to learn. And that's that's reasonable, but it is kind of weird that the the uh, this after interpretation, I mean, that Luke sometimes will just tell you what it means afterward or even before, unlike in Mark, whereas he just throws it in your court and says, him who has ears to hear, let him hear. Though, of course, Mark has added some parables, too. Um, later on, they ask him about this and that. But here, Luke just puts it right in there for you. But even that's confusing. How are you supposed to be making uh, friends who will welcome you into the the pearly gates by unrighteous mammon, by swindling? Oh, would these swindlers be in heaven? Would you be? Or that's why I think it's reasonable to say, no, what he's really saying is, use the unrighteous mammon, the worldly money, the only way it matters anymore, giving it to the poor. So I have some respect for that view, but I think it is confused, and I think that is Luke's fault. Uh see... Okay, one more from David Oliver Smith, and then I'm going to close up shop for today. Ever notice in the transfiguration in Mark's gospel that for no reason in particular, the narrative tells narrator tells the reader that after six days, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up the mountain? Uh, after what? I always wondered that, and did you ever notice that Jesus tells the three not to tell... Uh, anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rises from the dead, and they wonder what rising from the dead means, even though he told them he would be killed and rise from the dead just 16 verses earlier. Ever notice that? You might think it's Mark's making the disciples look dumb again, but is it really? The saga of writing my book on the original Gospel of Mark continues. As the result of discovering literary structures, I was compelled to move the Transfiguration, 9, 2 through 13, to immediately follow the return of the Twelve in 6, 30-31. I wonder if I could justify such a big movement. Uh, I wondered if I could justify such a big movement of an important pericope, which one might think belongs in the center of the gospel. Looking over my reconstruction, guess what I found? It looks to me like Mark's original gospel read, 630, and the apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they told him about everything, what they had done and what they had taught. And he says to them, Come down into the desert and rest a while, for many were coming and going, and they had no opportunity to even eat. And after six days, Jesus takes with him, nine, two, after six days, Jesus takes with him Peter and James and John and brings them up to the high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured in front of them. Now the reader can see that Jesus let the disciples recuperate 
wait for six days before taking the three up the mountain. The six days is not just random information, and now the transfiguration comes before Peter's confession at Caesarea Philippi, and they've never heard about rising from the dead before. They're not quite as dumb as we thought. Uh, And now the reader can infer what Jesus was talking about with Moses and Elijah. In canonical Mark, the fact that Jesus was talking to Moses and Elijah was another bit of seemingly random, useless information with magic overtones. After talking to them, Jesus knows what's going to happen to him if he accepts the mission. He also learns about the parousia. How do we know that that's what Jesus talked about with Mo and Curly? I mean, Ellie? As they're coming down the mountain, he tells the three not to tell what they saw until he rises from the dead. Eight pericopi later in my reconstruction, Jesus makes his first predictions of both the Passion and the Parousia at Caesarea Philippi. And another thing, ever wonder how Peter knew that Jesus was talking to Moses and Elijah? Do they have name tags? Hi, my name is Moses. Ever wonder that? carpal tunnel to yours. Yeah, I've said that for years, you know, that, that just shows you dealing with fiction. He knows who these guys are, so Peter and the others knew too. I think it was Michael Goulder uh, that uh, in his books where he tries to show the Gospels are heavily dependent upon early Jewish Christian lectionaries, and he says the, uh, the six days later refers to uh, a cycle of liturgical readings of Gospel material that is rewritten from Old Testament material. Uh, That might be good, a kind of a rubric, uh, who knows. Um, Albert Schweitzer did some similar juggling with stuff about how uh, uh, the transfiguration must have happened uh, before Caesarea Philippi, and that's how Peter knows the answer, And uh, but he's supposed to keep it a secret, and that was what Judas did to betray him. He went to the Sanhedrin and said, I'll tell you one thing, Jesus says he's the Messiah. Oh, he does, does he? Um, it could be. I, I'm all in favor of positing uh, interpolations and so on, but I don't know. Sometimes I think it's what we wind up doing is just to smooth out the bumps uh, and gaps that are there because somebody just strung isolated items together. I'll have to think more about it, though. I can't wait to see this book when you're done with it. Keep up the good work. Well, I better get going, uh, but I will see you soon, maybe even tomorrow if I'm lucky don't know if you'd be lucky, but if I'm lucky to um, do another exciting episode of The Bible Geek. Thanks for being with me, and I'll say sayonara. In the Bible we are told in that ancient lore of old. The Bible Geek was recorded by Robert M. Price and produced by John Felix and Sergeant Yovanovich. Theme song by John Morris. Visit us at robertmprice.mindvendor.com for more info on Robert's projects, purchase Bible Geek merchandise, and click the ever-important Donate button. Send your questions to criticus at aol.com, and be sure to rate and review The Bible Geek on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Bible Geek. I'm Torn Anderson. So you'd better brush the dust from that old Bible And look up to the stars when they shine Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. (laughs) 
Chumba. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.